0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well today we continue our series Under Pressure with a message titled Arm Yourself for Suffering. So turning your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I've chosen the title of my message today because that's what we're commanded to do in verse 1 of our text. We're to arm ourselves for suffering. And arm oneself is the image of a soldier putting on armor that he needs for battle. And once he's armed, he is prepared for what lies ahead. He doesn't enter the fight unprepared. So in that sense, I could have entitled my message, Prepare yourself. You're about to suffer. Now, if you followed me throughout this series in 1st Peter by now, that title won't strike you as surprising at all. I mean, 1st Peter is written to a group of persecuted and suffering Christians, and furthermore, 1st Peter is written by a man who was then in Rome and must have had a sense of how difficult life was becoming for Christians in that city. Did Peter have a sense in writing his own book? That his own martyrdom was at hand? Well, he must have because in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he said, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. And so we have to imagine that the man who's writing to suffering Christians has done his own fair bit of suffering and furthermore is expecting to do more. Indeed, one would think he's expecting martyrdom soon. Now, before reading today's text, I think it's necessary to hear this scripture in the light of so much bad theology in Christian circles. I mean, there are those in the word faith movement or who hold to the prosperity gospel who actually expect that faith, when it's properly exercised, is going to give you you know, wealth and health and good success in every venture, and you're going to have a good life. Well, let me say this, clearly as I can, not only is that untrue. But the scripture, and most specifically the book of 1 Peter, tells us the exact opposite. And furthermore, 1 Peter 2 verse 21 teaches us that Christ's sufferings are also intended for us that we should follow in his steps into the world of suffering. Let me say it again. If you've got a theology in which this isn't a part of it, you misunderstand the entire Christian faith. The place to get right is to stop listening to those teachers who lie to you about this. See, one of the reasons so many Christians today, when they suffer, will say, you know, how could God love me and allow this to happen to me? See, when they say that, they betray that all along, they've never understood the nature of the Christian faith. Heaven did not come down to earth, at least not yet. In this world, you must arm yourself for suffering. It's going to happen. Well, very good. Let's read our text, and I'm reading 1 Peter 4, 1-6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We're going to be looking at three direct teachings in this text. The first will deal with the relationship of suffering with our desire to sin. The second deals with why believers will suffer if they're faithful. It has everything to do with a clash of values. And the 3rd we'll deal with in a world where a great many people are destined not to hear and not to repent, but to carry on in their sinful ways, why is it that we still continue to preach the merciful gospel of Jesus? Good, that's what we're talking about today. So let's start from the beginning. We are, in verses 1 to 2, talking about suffering and the desire that we might have to sin. Again, notice where Peter's thoughts begin. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. The same way as what? Well, Peter means that we think the same way that Christ thought. Paul calls that the mind of Christ. Think the way Christ thought. Well then, how did Christ think? Well, we might go back to something that, that Peter would have remembered quite personally. Jesus, and this passage is recorded in Matthew 16, Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi in order to ask them, who do men say that I am? Well, now, before that conversation was done came one of Peter's finest moments. and He says, you know, people may say a number of things about your identity, but I know with certainty who you are, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And then, very shortly after Peter's finest moment comes Peter's worst moment. Jesus immediately tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, not to be celebrated as the Messiah, but to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. And then he also adds that he will be killed and then he will be raised from the dead. And right then, Peter takes Jesus aside and he begins rebuking him. He wants to set Jesus straight. Stop talking that kind of language. It doesn't help. It only disheartens your followers. It's time right now that you start talking Positive things about what's going to happen, and you'll remember how direct and stern Jesus was with Peter. Get behind me, Satan, says Jesus. Translation Peter, Satan is using you to talk this way. See how different Peter sounds now that he's writing 1 Peter. Have the attitude of Jesus, he says. Arm yourself with suffering. Be convinced that you will suffer as your master was. Convince yourself that you'll be treated as your Lord and Savior was. Again, contrast that to the expectation of many Christians today. See, when they find that the wider culture hates their values, especially around sex and sexuality, I'm gonna say more about that later, but when they find that, they look bewildered as if, hey, that wasn't supposed to happen. Arm yourself, Peter says, for suffering. That sounds like bad news, but Peter knows It is not. Now we come to the strange phrase at the end of verse 1. He says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, if one thought that Peter was making a general rule about that, I mean, we'd have to argue that he's wrong. I mean, after all, a great many people who have suffered horribly and in consequence of that didn't cease sinning at all. Indeed, some sin even more. And others might even shake their fist at God. I mean, why would God allow me such suffering? And they hardened their souls against God. Now, I don't think that Peter is giving us a general rule that suffering is the magic pill against sinning. Indeed, if we want to know what Peter means, we're going to have to ask him. And he does answer us. Look back to chapter 3, verse 17, where he said, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That is... A choice is put before a person. Do evil and then you won't have to suffer. Do good and you're going to have to suffer. And Peter says it's better to do good and to choose to suffer along with that. And he's going to explain that choice in verses 3 and 4 in our text. But let's play that out a bit. Imagine you're a Christian and the Nazis are coming to place all Jews into concentration camps that will result in exterminating them. You could be like the majority. I mean, perhaps you don't agree with what they're doing. Perhaps you think it's evil, but you do nothing. You just don't want to suffer. But you might be like, you know, the Ten Boom family in Holland. You're going to do good, and doing good will mean that you're going to suffer. And Peter would say it's better to suffer for doing good. That's what he's communicating here. The one who has made the decision that he would suffer to do what is good, even though that decision results in suffering that might be extreme, that person has already testified that they've ceased from loving sin. See, the Bible in numerous places makes it very plain. Look, before we die and are glorified, we are not going to be free from sin. I mean, for example, First John 1 verse 8, I think it makes it very plain. You know, if, if we claim in this life that we've not sinned, says John, we make God out to be a liar. God says, oh yeah, you've sinned, even when we claim we haven't. And so what does Peter mean by cease from sin? See, I think what Peter has in mind here is that they have ceased from desiring the kinds of sins that are going to be mentioned in the next two verses. They've ceased from the kind of passionate worldliness that will steer them from God. I mean, put it into terms that you can easily understand. We all know that for many years in the North American church, there has been one sexual scandal after another among, of all things, Christian leaders. One apologist, for example, leads a double life. He sexually exploits one woman after another. That's only brought to light after his death. Another pastor protests that when he's trying to take advantage of a woman in a motel room that he can't remember it now. You know, he was on pills and he was too drunk to recollect. I could go on and on. I mean, these leaders who should never have become leaders have never ceased from these kinds of gross sins. They long for impurity in their hearts, and they would never suffer to walk away from that kind of sinning. They are flesh indulgers, not flesh deniers. It's not just well-known leaders. In today's Christian church, there are a great many men and women who would never suffer to avoid sin. But there is another kind of Christian. It's the one who finds sin to be so distasteful so harmful to his or her soul that he would put up with any indignity to be free from it. God, give us those kinds of believers and leaders.
0: Back to the Bible Canada has just wrapped up another fiscal year, and we're beyond grateful for all your gifts toward our year-end target. Your generous donations have helped position this ministry for another successful year of sharing the gospel in every way imaginable. We're so excited for everything we have in store for this next year, so stay tuned. Our Match Campaign in June was a huge success, but we're humbled to say the amount of the pledges we received for the Match Campaign exceeded our expectations. Therefore, we're able to extend the campaign into July with an additional $75,000. So dollar for dollar, your gift will be matched up to an additional $75,000 in the month of July. We're so grateful for your gracious support right across Canada. So to double your impact, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: We come now to verses that explain to us why it is that Christians were suffering in the time of Peter. Look at verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, notice that verse 4 ends with the words, they malign you. The Greek word that our translators have translated as malign means to speak against someone in such a way as to harm or injure that person's reputation. So here's what was happening to Christians. All manner of people were destroying the social standing of Christians. I mean, you've got to imagine a Christian shop owner who has customers from a wide variety of sources. But now stories are being traded about the shop owner. He's not to be trusted, some say. Some of his customers perhaps get notes from others. They've heard rumors. Wouldn't it be better to take your business somewhere else? And you have to imagine that those who malign Christians were more than aware of what they were doing and the consequences that would come, financial consequences. I mean, perhaps others were no longer invited to social functions, places where they would have been welcomed earlier. Friendships are suddenly strained and broken. Conversations that were once free and open are now guarded and strained. Next-door neighbors no longer greet them with smiles. People now seem to ignore them. It begins to feel that they no longer live in the same city that they used to live in. See, maligning is usually the first step in what becomes more severe forms of persecution later. Once a culture maligns one people group for a period of time, the attitudes begin to harden hatred develops. And once hatred is established, the door is open for more severe forms of persecution. So we might ask, what started all of that? And here, Peter points out that the view that Christians had primarily around sex and sexuality was the issue. So let's look at the words that Peter uses. The first word is sensuality. The word speaks of behavior that's lacking in moral restraints. Now, most of the time it's speaking about sexual behavior, but it can also speak about the lack of restraint in other areas. But again, as I've said frequently, the word is about behaving promiscuously, or even as the Greeks thought of it, behaving like an animal, having no moral code. You would guard you against the free expression of your sex. Second word that Peter uses is passions, and it means lust. This lies at the heart. You might remember that Jesus forbade looking at a woman with lust. He called it sin. He likened it to adultery. The third word is drunkenness, and I've said it before, and I need to re-emphasize it here. The Bible doesn't forbid the drinking of wine, but it does forbid drunkenness, because drunkenness leads to a lack of moral restraint. And it's amazing. There are a great many people who, when planning sexual sin, always plan for it by first getting drunk. The fourth is orgies. And in the ancient world, this was often, you know, riotous people. Sometimes they would publicly parade in the streets. Most often they were drunk. They'd go down the street, torches in the evening, going to some place, singing the music of the god Bacchus. And of course, it would all result in sexual uncleanness. And the fifth is a Greek word which is translated as drinking parties. And in the ancient world, many banquets were held, and not all of them led to excessive drinking. But Christians didn't attend these parties because they surrounded themselves with alcohol and not with sober restraint. And then, of course, finally, Peter mentions lawless idolatry. You know, idolatry was considered a normal part of ancient culture. Each city housed not one but numerous temples, each one dedicated to a different deity. Often trade guilds would meet in these temples, and they would pour out offerings to the various gods, and it was considered polite and even good business to do so because it made you appear as a good, upstanding citizen. But Christians were always conspicuous by their absence. I notice that Peter doesn't just speak about idolatry. He calls it lawless idolatry. I mean, he may have had in mind that when Christians participated in that, they break the law of God. It was prohibited of them but others have mentioned that in many temples, temple prostitution simply went alongside of idolatry. And for our purposes, it's important to understand for many people in the ancient world, all the things that Peter's describing for us here, this just considered normal and natural, and Christians are conspicuous by their absence. Why won't they participate? Are they suddenly rejecting our values and culture? And isn't that an act of sedition? Notice again, verse four, they're surprised when you don't join them, says Peter. Another translation says, they think it's strange, strange behavior. It's met with shock. And then a vitriolic response. Notice also, Peter says, they think it's strange. They're surprised that you don't join them. The Greek word for join means to become a unity with them, that you don't run with a crowd. And you have to imagine that a great many of these Christians, you know, they were converted from that very environment. And now that they were in Christ, they're not there anymore. And that was shocking to the wider community. And we need to stop here and insist. Listen, there are a number of things that Christians must not participate in. Now, when I say that, I might add that during my short lifetime, things have changed significantly. I mean, I grew up in a world where Christians weren't allowed to go to movies or to a stage play or to any number of other social events. You know, in time, that's all changed, and much of it is a change that has come from stressing Christian freedom. Now, I don't want to make a comment about movies. I mean, clearly, some of the standards that we used to have were not in accordance with wisdom, but I have noticed, with a great deal of concern, even alarm, that the dividing line or the things that Christians must never participate in, that dividing line is being erased in our day. The ease to which many Christians will go to a party where drinking of alcohol is the main feature is to me both striking and it's alarming. And when you think of the constant parade of one Christian leader after another being found in some form of sexual immorality, it's become quite clear to me that the Christian lifestyle or the Christian code of conduct in the non-Christian world is being erased. We need to recover Christian living. We need to prefer the gathering of God's people in church to gathering at a concert or a bar or even a place of unclean sex. Sensuality is to be overtly rejected. That's not a suggestion, it's a command of God. There are numerous places in our world where you as a child of God have no business ever, ever, ever showing up. I know some of us gotten confused about this. I mean, the common idea that I've heard over and over again is to say, oh look, Jesus hung out with sinners. Well, yeah, he did. He did because they had him over and they wanted to hear from him about the kingdom of God. He didn't hang out with them to have a beer and watch pornographic movies. Look, you as a believer, you go anywhere where you're being asked to preach the gospel, but you don't go to places that are inappropriate. Notice verse 5 but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, when Peter is speaking about they, speaking about, you know, those people in the licentious ancient world who are heaping abuse upon Christians. Peter says, look, the day is going to come when every human being will have to give an account before God and be judged for every infraction of God's law. After all, it's not our world. It's not our lives. It's God's world, and we've received life as a gift from him, and every human being is accountable to God. Verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Remember, context is everything. Peter's not suddenly switching topics and telling us about how the gospel is being preached to those people who are dead. Rather, he's saying this is why the gospel was preached to people, and those very people are now dead. That is to say, at one time they heard the gospel, now they've died and are before the judgment. Indeed, if the gospel is preached rightly, people will understand that God pronounces judgment on all sinners. When the gospel is correctly preached, as Peter points out, people do feel they're going to be judged in the flesh. Just hearing that everyone's sin, fallen short of the glory of God, makes them aware of their sins. That's why Peter says we're judged in the flesh the way people are. See, I'm reminded of Paul as he was preaching to Felix in Caesarea, and here it's in Acts 24, verse 25. It says that Paul reasoned with Felix about what? Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. That was a part of the preaching of the gospel. That is gospel preaching. It presents Christ as a Savior, and it presents us as sinners who are in mortal danger and who need to be saved. The hope, says Peter, that they might live in the Spirit, the reality is that many of those who hear will not believe and they will enter into judgment. Well, that kind of preaching will result in suffering. And Peter says, get ready for it, arm yourself. They treated Jesus badly, you're gonna be treated badly as well.
0: John, thanks for your message today. You know, I think one of the greatest pressures of our day though, and particularly with Christian young people, is to embrace biblical teaching about uh, sexual purity of all kinds with the accusation that to do so would be seen as being
1: haters from a worldly perspective. Yeah, I think we can mitigate some of that, and one of the things that if... We shouldn't be surprised when the culture around us has a value system that's different than ours. So, rather than throwing all the barbs at the cultural system, let's explain to Christian people and also to people that ask us why it is that we believe that sex should be confined to marriage alone, explain why we do it that way, why that glorifies God, and why that's our commitment. So I think in that way, uh, we can simply explain ourselves rather than throwing barbs. And I do think it will mitigate some of the harshness that gets traded around because of this. Yeah,
0: thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. At Back to the Bible Canada, our mission is simple. Teach the Bible. The perfect guidance and instruction on how we are to live our lives is already available in His Word. The Bible is the only self-help book you'll ever need. This month, we have an outstanding resource to help prime your hearts to receive the wisdom of the Bible. Before You Open Your Bible by Matt Smethurst is an excellent book that shares how we can position our mindset to one of gratitude and humbleness in preparation for reading the Word. We're confident this will help positively influence the way you view your Bible study. And that's why we've made this resource available for you for free for the month of July. So simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your free copy or to send a financial gift to support this Bible
1: teaching ministry.